Ladies and gentlemen, this is Book Music. I am Tosh. And I'm Kimley. And each episode, we focus on a book on music. It could be a music history book or a memoir or a biography or autobiography by a musician or a music figure. And today, we're going to discuss the book Tapestry by Lauren Glass. Published by 33 and the Third Press Books. And Kinley, we have, again, a special guest today, don't we? We do. And that special guest is, and welcome, Lauren Glass. Thank you, both of you. It's an honor to be here. There's like a standing ovation. You don't see it, but there's a standing ovation everywhere. Right now, it's like plodding like crazy. I can feel <laughs> the energy in my room. <laughs> <laughs> Um, tapestry, Carol Keene, is a, is a really huge subject matter. It's such an iconic recording and album. Um, and I was really impressed. I mean, I'm very much interested to know about your childhood and your parents because it's not unusual because, well, it might be unusual for a lot of people, but uh, I came from a bohemian landscape and Kimley came from a bohemian landscape as well. And... I would presume you came from a bohemian landscape, I think. I did, but not everyone else has. And in fact, it's it's funny that you begin with that because in some ways it's the unusual countercultural nature of my childhood that is the ultimate reason I wrote this book. I had not planned to write a book on Carol King's tapestry. I was interested in the music uh, that I grew up with and the music that I uh, that my parents listened to. And I had started studying the the broader era as the album era and would give, you know, I gave occasional talks, academic talks about this. And I would always begin with this anecdote about my youth and listening to Carole King. And after I finished the talks, everyone would ask me questions about that. <laughs> they wanted to hear about, you know, yes. what was it like to grow up with, a, you know, a lesbian mom and a hippie dad and, you know, in, in Berkeley in the 70s. And so the book ended up, coming out of both, of course, the enormous importance and significance of, of this album, but also the way in which my own um, autobiography and my own life intersected with the album and sort of illuminated the era in which the album came out. I find your history fascinating. Um, I think just because I sort of tie it in slight. Yours is actually more, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a sort of a child of the late 50s and early 60s, merging into the hippie world and, and in Topanga Canyon, which is sort of the cousin or brother of, uh, of Laurel Canyon. For sure. Um, Kimley, did you, do you feel tied in with, with that generation or, or? Well, I mean, that is when I grew up, so it's inevitable. You can't escape it. Um, I think one of the really interesting things that uh, struck me is in uh, the beginning of the book, you say, unlike previous generations, we children of the counterculture shared our parents' music tastes. And that was very much true in my household. I listened very much to my mother's records, including Tapestry. Um, you know, and it started to make me wonder why that was. Why was uh, our parents' generation sort of that first generation to share their music and and it wasn't there wasn't this pushback from the children do you have any thoughts about why that might be um well first of all i sh should say that you're not the first person to confirm that with me and uh, many folks of my cohort or generation have also said that they one of the memories one of the positive memories they ha they have about their uh, about their childhood 
is sharing music that their parents listen to, which frequently they still love now, right? So we, a lot of us mm-hmm. listen to the Rolling Stones and the and the yeah. Beatles and Carol King, etc. And I think in order to fully understand it, you have to go actually back to the to their generation when the music represented their break with their parents. And in a sense, I think we were um, inheriting that break at a more mature level, right? One of the things I talk about in my book is how um, rock rock and roll as a sort of teenage phenomenon uh, mm-hmm. developed or matured or, or grew into rock music as an album mature phenomenon um, and therefore became sort of something that our parents handed down to us instead of something that was a um, uh, was a division or a uh, split. So we, we along with our parents, we inherited this this transformation um, in in music and in the function of music. And part of this, I think, does have to do with actually the album as a as a form. Um, and uh, and also, of course, with, I guess, the, the larger uh, significance of the 60s as a watershed in um, in American history. Right. So what we shared more with our parents as being post 60s than we um, than they did, uh, you know, having having split with the, the prior generation before. Although I should say that, you know, I, we, I think, benefited or, or, or I don't know whether <laughs> I felt I benefited. Um, our parents, of course, were or my parents were were activists. They were in the movement. Uh, they were counterculturally um, conditioned, so to speak. Um, of course, not everyone who grew up in the '70s had parents who were who were that hip. <laughs> um, and right. indeed, I had friends. I, you know, I, in fact, when I, I I was in a a rock band, of course, when I was like 16 or 17, and we weren't very good. And I remember asking my mom, "How did you put up with with all the noise we made?" And she's like, well, I think I think I liked it. You know, I enjoyed it. But of course, I don't think all parents like, you know, I mean, I had right. other I had parents who, who didn't like us to, you know, jam in their basements or or do whatever. So um, but I do think that their their sense of a break from the past mm. uh, contributed to our own sense of being raised in a new and, and different way. And I I I had a gradual awareness of that as I was growing up. And then, of course, I went out once I moved out and went away to college, I realized that, in fact, I was more of an exception than I thought, or that, you know, not everyone had had uh, that kind of, um, you know, more experimental up- upbringing, so to speak. Right. When I was growing up, my mom was always the cool mom. <laughs> no, I exactly. remember my I'm friend's right. houses were very different from mine. <laughs> my mom is still the cool mom. I mean, yes, <laughs> so is mine. <laughs> And Tasha's. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I noticed, I noticed in my life, and I presume in your lives, both of you, that uh, there's our lives and then there's other people's lives and they're quite different. For sure. Uh, and, it, you know, it's partly um, region. Yes. California, the coastal, you know, being being raised in those coastal, um, those were Bohemian uh, Petri dishes, really, right? I mean, those right. regions were, right. were where the sort of new cultural um, and social experimentation was going on and of course yeah. it took a while to realize that the rest of the world wasn't uh you know up to speed with us <laughs> how old were you when you realized that there was there were like other people living different lives than you well i you know it i think it happened gradually i mean obviously once i uh you know hit high school and started taking drugs and experimenting mm-hmm. i i was sort of philosophically aware of 
you know, a larger world that had all sorts of, you know, differences from where I was growing up. But like I said, it wasn't really till I moved out uh, that mm -hmm. I learned, you know, not everyone smoked pot. Uh, not everyone listened to the kinds of music that I that I listened to. Um, I knew that, of course, there were people with different values, uh, but I didn't mm -hmm. know there were so many of them. Um, you know, mm -hmm. that, that, that in fact, in many ways, what uh, my my parents' political and social um, orientation was, in fact, still in the in the minority. Um, I think I you get an inflated sense of your own enlightened generation, I guess, um, and it took mm -hmm. me a while to learn. Uh, what a what a relatively small group I actually was from, and then I, actually the the final realization of it was you know in talking about this book and having everyone you know so fascinated with me like I'm some sort of exotic thing. You're, you're, <laughs> totally, you're, you're totally exotic to me. Yeah. <laughs> I just feel like a normal guy. Um, right. But anyway, so it it happens sort of in waves and over time. Um, and this book was actually a, a wonderful opportunity to reflect on that. I, I hadn't. I hadn't written autobiograph autobiographically before. Most of my work is just sort of standard literary criticism and literary history. So this was the first chance I had to really dwell in a sort of disciplined and focused way on mm -hmm. what it meant to grow up at the time and in the place that I grew up. And it just so happened that there were some albums. This one, this isn't the only one, but this one was particularly salient, uh, particularly for my mom. Um, and to really dwell on a, a sort of text uh, where my personal story and the larger historical story really overlapped in this powerful way. Now, it's interesting you say in the book, you know, you're talking about all of the albums that came out, these iconic albums from 1971. You said the rock album had come of age as a serious art form and an agent of cultural change. And I do think, you know, continuing on this is that it is important to realize that this was sort of the first generation of people who grew up with rock and roll who are now starting to have their own children and they're still recording rock and roll. You know, I mean, she was, what, what was she in her late twenties when she put this out? Early thirties. Um, yeah. I think the late twenties, early thirties. She was, yeah. I mean, she was older than a lot of other, you know, rock stars and, and, right. and uh, emerging figures, although not everyone um, uh, knew that, but yeah, I mean, it makes you realize how truly significant rock was as a cultural and political force. I mean, it was much more than just leisure. <laughs> um, right. These, these, uh, these uh, musicians were, um, well, obviously they were, you know, role models in some ways, but, uh, and of course, a lot of the one thing that people always say, you know, that was the soundtrack to my youth or the soundtrack to my college years. But I try and at least suggest that it was even more that, um, uh, Records like Tapestry, and then I talk a little bit about um, uh, some women before that, Aretha Franklin, or even Barbara Streisand, uh, mm -hmm. uh, and who really uh, um, drove home the uh, the struggle for independence as well as the critique of sexism that would become central to women's lib. So I actually try and argue that it it didn't just reflect the times; it wasn't just a soundtrack to the times. Mm -hmm. But it was an engine of the times. It helped people change. It it helped people make sense of the change that they were experiencing. And I think in some ways it helped uh, both both cause and and shape uh, the change, the way people um, experienced the what was really a, a disorienting period. Um, and that I don't remember as much, right? Because I don't, I, mm -hmm. I conscious memories don't really begin until early to mid seventies. 
So it's sort of reading backwards into the experience of my parents. Um, and in, I, I think I learned more, you know, something more about my parents through, you know, going back and studying the texts and in, in really more music than than books. Um, mm. I mean, they were reading as well, uh, but that just wasn't as significant and wasn't shared in the same way. You know, we didn't read books and talk about them together, really. Uh, but we certainly listened to music together and, and shared um, it, you know, its joys and it, and its meanings. What is the connection between your mother and her, your mother and her love for ta uh, tapestry? Well, you know, she, so she was in the movement and then was in the women's liberation movement. And indeed my parents breakup, uh, like Carol King's breakup, you know, those breakups were in some ways more meaningful because they were personal experiences that were deeply connected to larger historical experiences. Right. So yeah. I, I don't, I don't think my parents would have probably lasted in any, you know, in, in different formations. But the fact that they were um, activists together at the time of the uh, women's liberation movement, that was the, the that was definitely instrumental in the transformations that my mom was going through at that time. Right. So her breakup, mm -hmm. with my father wasn't just about, you know, I don't know, ir irreconcilable difficulties or whatever. It was also about, you know, theories of patriarchy and ideas about women's sexuality and all sorts of larger uh, mm. uh, political and social things that were going down as a result of um, women's liberation. And of course, um, my early memory that I always associate with tapestry is this memory of listening to my mom's uh, consciousness raising group or their sort of their poetry and them reciting these, these, these chants from um, uh, this, this set of actually of, of lesbian feminist poems called She Who. Mm. Uh, so that, in my memory, those those rap those sort of are are interconnected. And my mom, the the change, the changes that my mom was going through, were reflected in her own life by the changes in her listening habits and the mm -hmm. right and the the um, the female singer songwriters that she was listening to. And indeed, I became all the more convinced in studying this period of how politically significant those women were, right? Not just Carol mm -hmm. King, Joni Mitchell, Phoebe Snow, Holly Near. Um, you know, this was where culture and politics really intersected in these profoundly powerful ways. And so that, that was really, um, I knew that these records had that meaning for my mom, but again, going back and studying it, well, it had a funny effect. Going back and studying it made me understand the history more, but actually made me lose the personal memories also, so I can't remember mm. now. I've written so much about the album. I, mm. I've lost my actual personal memories <laughs> of mm. listening to it. Wow. I, I've, I've often wondered. I need to talk to other memoir writers or autobiographical writers. I don't know that whether this is common, um, but I found that to write about the past is also to sort of lose the specificity of the memories. I can't, you know, once I've talked about the memories, then they become sort of wrapped up in the in the composition of the book, and I can't really access them as pure memories as much anymore. It's like I've recontextualized them in my brain or something. Oh, that's interesting. For me, the Tapestry album is very sort of Proustian Madeleine. That's like yeah. I can picture myself sitting on that mid-century uh, leather sofa in my parents' living room. You know, it's like a very vivid memory. When you listen to Tapestry now or, you know, in the recent past, do you think of your mother or do you, or is it a totally new listening experience for you? Or? Uh, actually, it's well, a little bit of each, and in some mm -hmm. ways, it depends. I mean, I've 
I actually have to say, I've, I've my whole ability to listen, I think, has improved from writing this book. I have to say, I've, I've been a reader all my life, and I do, you know, I, I love music, but it was frequently sort of a background thing or a, a leisure thing. Um, and so turning back and listening carefully, you know, close listening, as we sometimes call it, I both heard partly through my mom and my mom's generation, but I also started hearing it more as a musician. So, you know, when I grew up with, I didn't know that much about music. I mean, I loved music, but I didn't know about Mm -hmm. music theory and chords and stuff. And so I was able uh, this time to have a much more heightened appreciation of um, how skillfully it is assembled, (laughs) both Mm -hmm. musically Mm -hmm. and technically. And so uh, I would say that my, my, both listening to this record, but actually my whole capacity to listen has been improved by working on this book on both mm-hmm. levels, both in terms of trying to get a sense of, you know, what this meant for the people who listened to it and for my mother and other people of that generation, but also with a wider understanding of how records are made, um, both musically and technically. And of course, my appreciation of Carol King mm-hmm. was enormously in, enhanced by this because you can really hear in the, in the backup singing, in the harmonies, mm-hmm. chords, um, you can really hear what a what a professional um, mm-hmm. she she is and and was. Um, so so yeah, a little bit of a little bit of both. I, I felt like I was partly reaccessing my mother's generation and my mom in her um, you know in her the particular stage she was at then, which of course I didn't fully understand. Remember, I was just six or mm-hmm. seven. So you know the breakup and the th- the, the the lovers that my mom had and the music she listened to. You know, there was a, as, as you know, you know, you don't really know what's going on with your parents when you're a kid, yeah. you just sort of witness it. So it's, um, you know, it's enriched my understanding of, of her and of that time. But mm-hmm. also, like, like I said, it, it, it made me learn a little bit how to, how to listen to music as a professional or as a critic. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we talk English, we talk about close reading, um, but there's a whole other skill to close listening Yes. Um, that really gives you an enhanced joy from from records, um, and you know a lot of this has to do with going back to records. I um, I had a sort of crisis in my listening experiences with uh, with the digitization of everything, and I didn't I, I actually didn't know what to buy or listen to. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it was like all of music had become this one huge digital library, and I couldn't orient myself or decide or yeah. what to listen to, and I. Um, and actually, when I first started listening to albums again, they felt really long. <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't realize that I'd actually sat down and listened to whole albums before it had been so yeah. long. Wow. Um, so, yeah, there's been a whole other uh, level of experience in writing this book of, of re-acclimating myself or reattaching to what it means to listen carefully to a full-length album. It had really been right. a long time since I had done that, maybe even since I was a kid. Yeah, for me, um, a sort of similar experience, and I think for Kimley as well, is that um, I really appreciate the album format. Um, I like there's a beginning song, and there's an end song, and there's stuff in between that beginning and ending. And like a lot of people, I went digital. Um, but after you know a few years of digital listening to stuff, I, I, I feel really a hunger to listen to an album again. Me too. And also to hold something in your hand. <laughs> I didn't really yes. what, yeah. you know, you don't really think of it, but actually I didn't just listening without looking at something or having some point of reference actually 
screwed up my my attention span and my 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 ability to to uh here with the kind of focus and and so that was another thing i realized in in starting to buy albums again is how much i loved the packaging <laughs> you know how much right. and how much yeah. the packaging meant to the experience of uh, of the album and cd's just really didn't quite reproduce that or if they did it was mm -hmm. in a sort of of you know inferior way um so uh, yeah, I mean, I think that we, a lot of us miss the album. It's become a sort of nostalgic object. Um, yeah. and, uh, uh, I've been thinking a lot, you know, I mean, that was, again, that was my curiosity about that was what led to me writing this book. And indeed this, you know, I, I sort of insert some of my theories about, you know, the significance of the album format into this discussion. Cause of course the series itself, the 33 and a third series itself testifies to how <laughs> right. meaningful that, that is to us, right? That you can have a series uh, devoted <laughs> purely to a format. And it's a very popular series. Yes, it um, is. Yeah, a lot yeah, of we, people read it. Do a lot. So. Yeah. And, you know, in that line, you also point out that it's one of the earliest records to have the lyrics, that you get the lyric yes. sheets. And I remember sitting there with the album and then looking at the reading the lyrics and memorizing the lyrics and you know, that is really one of the things I miss the most about not having a 12-inch vinyl record all the time. And you miss all the liner notes and the credits. It's like a lot of times I want to see who wrote a song or who's playing on a song. Mm. So, yeah. But I was very intrigued. But I didn't realize that it was one of the earliest records to contain the lyrics because that was very important to me when I was listening to Tapestry. Oh, crucial. And I've actually, so uh, uh, as far as I know, although I, this seems like someone could find a refutation of this, but in the standard histories, it's Sergeant Pepper that started that, that apparently before Sergeant Pepper, I can't imagine that there were no albums with the lyrics, but apparently it was Sergeant Pepper that made it like, a, a, you know, that make, gave the idea some legs and, and right. contributed to it. And since then, I've been fascinated by who puts the lyrics and how they put the lyrics. Bob mm -hmm. Dylan never puts the lyrics on no. his album. You can't find <laughs> none of them. Um, no. Other people, the singer-songwriters like Carol King and uh, um, Joni Mitchell and uh, all of those folks always put the lyrics there. And I think it's assumed that you will sit there and read the lyrics while you're listening. And I actually think that it's possible that they get embedded deep, more deeply in our memory because of that, right? I have yeah. Other, yeah. other people whose lyrics I cannot recall as easily, whereas uh, the lyrics on Tapestry are, are practically, you know, uh, stamped um into my into my memory and then other people put the lyrics in ways that are unreadable i i, I recently yeah. got um uh it takes a nation of millions you know and they put in the rat it's all written in this really tiny and it's almost like they want you to strain like they want you to <laughs> <laughs> or, or work for it sometimes they're handwritten and the and the handwriting is really hard mm -hmm. to read or whatever mm -hmm. so there's all sorts of ways of um mm -hmm you know, of rendering or providing uh, the lyrics, but almost always with the assumption that you will hold that object in your hand as you're listening to the album. And I really think that shapes our uh, emotional connection and even our sort of cognitive uh, recall or, or, or relationship um, uh, to it. And indeed, I remember the Tapestry album, the physical object, as much as, as well as I remember the songs, right? I mm -hmm. mean... The, the, that cover photograph must be one of the most iconic photographs of that era or even of that century. Um, yeah. It's interesting, you know, back to the lyric writing on album covers, uh, a band I, I really admire uh, called Pulp and Jarvis Cocker is the lead singer and the, the lyricist for that uh, band, uh, always has his lyrics printed on his album. 
but 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 he requests that people do not listen to the music while reading the lyrics. <laughs> but I, it's possible that I mean I've always thought that Dylan doesn't put them because he probably figures he's speaking clearly enough and you should have to listen, right? So I guess yeah. the assumption there is that if you're reading, maybe you're not listening as carefully. And actually here you would probably need a, you know, a cognitive study or some sort of, uh, uh, you know, uh, neurological um, research mm. project. Um, and I don't, I actually don't, I, I, I can't speak to, I don't know what is better or what, which, mm. which mean which. Um, but I do think that there are some, you know, Dylan, maybe REM, people are like, it's your challenge. You've got to listen carefully. And this is the way it goes, right? The the song right. is the carrier of the words and and these words should be uh should be listened to. Um right. but uh I I think there's something intimate to being able to read the lyrics while you're hearing it. But I, I yeah. I think yeah. the choice is important. Like you could do both. I mean you can, yeah. you know, you could like I tend to casually look at the lyrics while listening to the album. Sometimes I'm really into like the lyrics and I listen to the lyrics to see if it goes with the music. And sometimes the singer says something else that's print from the printed lyric. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's um, the other thing is I, yeah. I think you go when you want to correct your memory. You're like, I can't remember what's in that line and you want to go see. But of course, of course it's a, if it's a Bob Dylan song, it'll be different. You'll go to the yeah. lyrics, right. one thing, and you'll realize, oh. And I think he does that on purpose. I think he yes. screws with it. Yeah, I think he's doing a lot of wordplay, you know, and so a word can be taken in multiple meanings. Uh, I think that's a big part of it. If he writes it down for you to see, then you're going to you're only going to get that one meaning, whereas he wants you to get multiple meanings from it. Yeah, more of a textual response. Yeah, I think he wants each performance to be completely unique unto itself. Right. So it's not. Yeah have to conform to a previous model whereas people like carol king or paul simon they're playing you the song and it and it sounds like the song right they're not you know dylan you never know what you're going to hear it could be a completely different sounding thing you won't even recognize it yeah. mm-hmm. song that you thought you knew uh whereas most people you know they they feel that it's sort of their obligation to deliver to you the song as you heard it or 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 knew it um, the great thing also, though, of course, about Carole King is her songs are so amenable to covers and there's so many other people who make them their own. Yeah, it's interesting that um, she recorded a lot of songs that were already hits by major artists like Aretha Franklin, you know, You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman. And I kind of, you know, part of me was wondering at, you know, her bravery and and trying to follow up Aretha Franklin when her voice isn't anywhere nearly as technically good as Aretha's but yet she still managed to make you know I mean it is her song she wrote it and she did manage to make it her own but uh, I was I thought boy I I don't know if I'd have the chutzpah to (laughs) sing a song after Aretha you know (laughs) I totally agree and uh you know but Carol it's part of her graciousness and her professionalism um she was of course initially reluctant to perform if not to record and and Lou Adler and um uh um James Taylor had to to convince her that you know she was good enough to perform but I think that part of the appeal of Carol King um uh is that she sounds sort of like a normal singer like you sort of think well I could I could sing like that and so part of her appeal which is different than appeal, right? Uh, different than mm-hmm. Aretha. Aretha is totally mind blowing. You're like, why? Well, you know, it's just like, it's like super stellar. It's like out of this right. world. Um, but when people heard Carol King sing, uh, they felt that they could sing along or that they could sing sing like that. Um, and uh, King, uh, who had you know who 
is both professional, but I think, you know, humble, um, was able to accept her voice as a sort of, um, you know, a tool for the music instead of some sort of magical gift like you get with Aretha or even with Joni, um, uh, you know, these, these sort of distinctive gift uh, uh, voices that really sound like they somehow were created to sing. Um, Carol King doesn't sound like that. She sounds like a, a person who is singing, not someone who is gifted as a, you know, with, mm-hmm. you know, with this uh, uh, amazing, uh, amazing voice. Um, but it's true. She uh, was, I mean, the song belongs to both of them. I mean, both, right. Both those versions are, I mean, other people have done those songs, but, mm-hmm. uh, um, and it sort of has, has woven them together in history a little bit, I think. I think Carole King has such a fascinating history because obviously she'd already been writing songs for a decade when this came out. And you point out, you say, the fact that she was a Jewish American woman from Brooklyn who honed her style writing for and imitating African-American vocalists informed her public image, even for those who are unaware of these crucial details. I feel like this is sort of very quintessentially American. And there's like, that that's a lot to unpack there. There's so much going on with her background. I think that's really interesting. Absolutely. And um, that was a fascinating part to go back and research. And indeed, I didn't, I mean, well, when I listened to the album, I, you know, I was young and I, of course, had no idea that those songs came from a a past iteration. And speaking anecdotally, I think that that knowledge was not always well distributed. The the music press knew it. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, they remembered that. But I think a lot of people who uh, were Carole King fans in the 70s did not know that she had been the, you know, that all these other songs that they had heard when they were kids were written by her. And then, uh, as you know, Kimley, the, um, the specific cultural formation of, um, uh, of Jewish artists uh, writing for or sometimes appropriating uh, African-American sounds, that goes at least back to Al Jolson. Mm-hmm. Um, and some would say that the entire, you know, one whole element of uh, American popular music is encapsulated in that relationship, right? In mm-hmm. uh, sort of uneasy... Uh, collaboration, sometimes very cooperative, sometimes exploitative, uh, between um, Jews who are frequently writing or recording, right, o- owned the record company, uh, mm-hmm. and African Americans who were the performers and frequently did not get um, the as many of the the uh, economic uh, awards that um, that came from um, you know making hit songs or uh, getting onto the onto the radio. But um, the other thing, though, is that a lot of folks don't. It, this is another way that my ear got better trained as I was listening is at, I'm, a, I'm a much more experienced listener now when I listen to the record and so that you can hear the gospel and the R&B in her voice, in the phrasings and in the music in a way that is not aware of to that level of sophistication. And indeed, you know, once Carol King got sort of relegated to adult contemporary and soft rock, that connection got attenuated and kind of lost and people didn't, exp- didn't realize or appreciate uh, the degree to which um, the sort of the sound and feel of the um, African-American R&B scene from the 50s and 60s, how much that's embedded, you know, just throughout the, uh, her, her musical, you know, her ear um, and her style. So that, that was also a way in which my appreciation of the album uh, expanded in my... Um, in my research of it. Mm-hmm. What do you think it is about that particular album that she's just never been able to replicate? I mean, she had all those hits before she's had hits since, but 
nothing has really come even close to tapestry. I that. know that's a well. So on one level, it's simply the uh, the impact of the album was so huge that really nothing could compare. Everything would be compared negatively to it. And so part of it was just in that, you know, and many people say, you know, she she had another album right that year called Music uh, that certainly had songs that were as good as on Tapestry. Um, so in some ways, I just think that it's like you have a towering statue and if every, everything else is sort of, you know, disappears in its in its shadow. Mm -hmm. I also think, though, that I, I have to say that I think that um, in the later albums, Carol King's liabilities as a lyricist came out more. So a sort of perfect mm -hmm. moment happened around Tapestry where she had written some of her own great songs. She had just started working with Tony Stern, who had some good songs. And she was able to bring in some old songs with Jerry Goffin to make this kind of perfect combination. And in the later albums, you can feel her sort of struggling for the right lyrics. The songs are still good. Mm -hmm. uh, she didn't find anyone that worked with her as well as Goffin. So the, um, the, sometimes she would get people uh, and the lyrics just seemed, you know, trite or they just seemed sort of strung along. Um, and they uh, they couldn't um, you know appeal to that degree, but I also think that the year it came out was unique, right? It was one of those things where the album and the time matched perfectly, and that doesn't mm -hmm. always happen, right? So the experience that women were going through, and in a larger way that the whole society was going through, and not just in the United States, around the world, right? I mean, that, this was a mm -hmm. global mm -hmm. phenomenon. Um, the album just caught on with that those those sensibilities um and then uh you know the 70s sort of i won't say they petered out um but but there was a real you know 75 was a, almost a different era than 1971 mm -hmm. and um and indeed i think carol king felt herself to be less in tune with what was going on you know and she just retreated uh um basically mm -hmm. to to the to the backwoods so i think it's a combination of King not herself finding, you know, this sort of whatever perfect constellation of things. But I think it's also the um, the year it came out. It was, you know, that that was a and in fact, when I when I try and periodize what I'm thinking of as the album era, I sort of see 70 and 71 as the sort of peak um, period of the significance or um, I don't know, power of the of the format. Right. Was Tapestry as big an album outside of the U.S.? Um, I think it was, although the statistics that you get are all, I believe, American sales. Um, uh, no, it actually, no. So it was big in the Anglophone world, it, um, uh, for sure. I know it, it charted in Australia and Canada and England. Uh -huh. um, I don't know how widespread it was in, you know, in non-Anglophone um, uh, countries. But one of the things I have learned is that rock was one of... Uh, the English world's exports into the rest of the world, right? So, right. Uh -huh. um, you know, like the Beatles, the Beatles were everywhere, whether you listen to, you know, the way, you know, Japan, um, mm -hmm. Latin America. Um, so I actually didn't, I didn't uh, study its, uh, you know, in, in any uh, uh, system, systematic way. Um, but if you do look, if you look at the album, the, the charts, there are, there are listings in the, um, the other Anglophone charts mm -hmm. in, Canada. And actually, one of the things that's fascinating to me about albums in the album era is that they don't fall into national 
boundaries in the same way that literature does, right? So in, in, in rock music, it makes no sense really to separate Canada and America. You know, people, a lot of people don't even know that Joni Mitchell and Neil Young and the band and all those people right. are, are predominantly Canadian. Uh, but in truth, it's, um, it's an Anglophone genre, but it's, and it has, it's, it has its roots in America in some ways, right? Mm -hmm. In the R&B, in the, in the, in the uh, blues and that scene. Um, but it there it's it's not always useful to think of it in terms of national boundaries. Certainly, the California thing is significant, um, and the idea of the album as as coming out of a California sound, which of course in itself had very specific kind of cultural and social uh, meanings at, at that time and and still now. Um, but uh, uh, as an American um, album, you know, I mean, in some ways, of course, but then in other ways, that's uh, that's reductive. My wife, who's Japanese, she one of the early Western uh, albums or songs or singles she purchased or given to her was a, was Carol King's uh, sure. Tapestry, and she we were talking about this last night, and she told me that. Her lyrics are easy for a Japanese person to listen to because it's sort of like, you know, um, you got a friend. It's very easy right. for a Japanese person to understand that phrase. <laughs> Bob Dylan's, uh, we're all going to get stoned. We're going to stone you when you, you know, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> it's a little bit more obscure and a little bit more puzzling for a um, yeah, for English is a second language. Oh, sure. And actually, I'm sure I, I can only imagine that, that folks have... Uh, learned English from pop songs that are easy to, uh, you know, easy to sing and easy to hear. And of course, as we, you know, in his, the history of the 60s in particular is in some ways the history of um, American-based movements going global, right? So yes. uh, the women's movement started here, but it quickly went international. Um, and of course, the soundtrack would have gone along with it. <laughs> um, so it wouldn't surprise me that uh, that the album would have had that that same kind of um, gradual international spread that um, that rock and the counterculture also did. Right. You know, so right. there was a, a big countercultural movement in Japan um, and uh, obviously in many ways was had it, you know, as as anywhere, it's specific Japanese or in Mexico. Right. But but actually the soundtrack frequently was. Anglophone and and frequently the models mm -hmm. of political activity or activism and even the rallying cries, uh, you know, the personal is political or Black Power, um, those just rapidly uh, uh, circled the globe. And I I'm quite convinced that music was one of the um, predominant sort of bearers of of revolutionary mm -hmm. thinking. Um, right. It's interesting to me. Carol King's like two different identities or two separate careers. There's her, you know, like her brill building years and then emerge into being a singer songwriter. And I can't think of anybody in her generation except maybe Neil Diamond. Yeah. Who you know, went from being, you know, straight songwriter to performer and songwriter. And maybe Bob Dylan in a way, because you know, I think probably the first Bob Dylan song was probably through the birds or the turtles, for instance. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, Carol King was the one to most fully embody both sides of the transition that that was going on right so everyone was go not everyone but people were going to california then and right and the music mm -hmm. industry itself was shifting over to california but most people either had their careers destroyed in new york <laughs> or had their careers start in california and uh -huh. king was one of the one of the only 
people to do to do both. Um, actually, you know, another sort of example of this, I just watched the HBO special on Tina Turner. Start in the 60s and one. And then, you know, I didn't even remember she was 50 when she hit it big in the 80s with right. these global yeah. stadium shows like unprecedented. And so that's the closest that I could come to to someone with a kind of, you know, foot in both areas. I mean, Paul Simon, you know, he started out. He didn't I don't know how many Brill Building songs he wrote, but he was there mm -hmm. uh, in the videos. You can see pictures of him very young. Um, uh, and, you know, Tony Orlando and Don, they were they were back there. Um, but really, it was mostly that most of the people who participated in that Brill Building sound just got sort of rotated out of the industry entirely and disappeared. And it was uh, Kings, um, you know, both being in the right place at the right time, but also having the right set of talent um, to be able to actually have a career in both places. Right. I mean, Bob Dylan destroyed the Brill Building. He never had a real, you know, he, he, his career began by pushing all of that stuff um, uh, behind us. Although, as you note, he wrote a lot of songs that were then recorded as, as covers. Um, and the birds, I, th I believe the birds made Mr. Tambourine Main famous before his version even came out. At least for me, that's the case. Yeah. It's a constant theme for um, King that she was never interested in getting caught up in the marketing machinery of promoting no. her work. Um, you know, and I think, you know, I, I do kind of wonder if that's just because she was a woman and, and especially in that era, even though the feminist movement was taking off, we're still sort of inclined to believe that we don't go around shouting, hey, look at me, look at me. I'm so great. You know, that's not ladylike. <laughs> uh, it was it was I think it was partly surely uh, um, had to do with her gender, but also, of course, her her personality. So she there were other women who were more prominent publicly, obviously, the, the comparisons I make are, are Janis Joplin on, on one hand and then uh, say someone like Joni Mitchell. Um, but um, she was really determined from the beginning, um, not only not to do the publicity thing, but also, um, you know, to devote herself to her kids. That was in some mm. ways more important. And she didn't want to do anything in her career that would jeopardize the the time, uh, the quality of time and the amount of time she had with her children. And as I note in the book, that had this felicitously ironic, ironic effect of giving her this public image as a mother who protected her privacy. <laughs> right. right. So he, it, it really ended up that what what you might have thought was a, a liability or, a, or a, a, you know, a, um, uh, something to overcome ended up really being in, in the end, a kind of strength um, of her image. And particularly if you look at her now, she I mean, obviously she looks older, but um, it's amazing how much her image has just held up. I mean, Joni Mitchell has vanished. Um, Tina Turner looked really different and, you know, obviously it had some surgery and whatever. But, you know, Carol King comes out and it's there's this continuity between I mean, you know, again, she's obviously older, but the, the image, the larger image of this kind of um, warm, uh, accessible mother figure um, has, has really uh, uh, she's aged into it or through it. And it's um, in the end, I think, uh, ironically, been an effective kind of marketing <laughs> uh, uh, tool, um, even though, as you know, she's, you know, the opposite of, of flamboyant. But I, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going to just go back to Tina Turner, because I saw that, you know, and when the, when her manager says, well, what do you want to be? She's like, I want to be like Mick Jagger and David Bowie. And I'm like, yeah, you go. Like, who, who, <laughs> exactly. who, who at that age? Uh -huh. hey, that's, that's I, mean, I wanted to be that when I was, you know, 16. But, right. Uh, uh, 
Yeah, she's amazing. But yeah. There's no doubt that it's harder overall. It is harder to manage a stable public image as a female pop star. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and there are lots more risks uh, involved, uh, both personal and professional, to to do it that way. But I think just by temperament, she was not. She's not a glad hander. She she gives very few interviews. I was never even able to get, you know, beyond a, a brief email with her management uh, when I started mm. to write this book. Um, uh-huh. And you know, that's just that's just the way she is. She doesn't want to go out there and and uh, you know um, uh, be surrounded by adoring fans and and be the the center of attention. Right. I have to confess, I. I bristle a little bit at all of the male critics at the time who would focus on her being a fantastic mother and yeah. going on and on about that in the sense that, you know, I don't think they would ever write about a man, you know, no. oh, he's such, you know, his parenting That's skills are so great. You know, uh, I don't think a man would miss going to the Grammys when uh, their album was up for her best album. You know? No, although so. it's funny you mentioned that my mother just visited me and we were talking about, um, Bob Dylan and the motorfi- motorcycle accident. And I, my theory has always been that he didn't really have a motorcycle accident, that he actually wanted to stay home with his kids and needed. Ah. And indeed he, he did. Unlike a lot of male, like most male pop stars were terrible fathers. I, you know, they just, right. they would just leave their kids at home with the, you know, with women or, or caretakers and, and, you know, appear every once in a while. But I, Dylan between 65 and 75, I think he really did make an effort. Uh, I mean, I don't know how great a father he was, but um, right. I do think that that that's what he wanted to do, and he knew that he couldn't do both. Uh, and he made very few live, you know. I think what between sixty six and seventy five, I don't think he made a single live appearance. Uh, mm-hmm. And then he made occasional ones. Then early seventies, they did the did the tour again. But um, right. but that's the exception that proves the rule. I mean, I think you're right. Nobody talks about. Um, I mean, you know, it's interesting. I, like maybe Bruce Springsteen. Uh, we sort of, right. The ones who are supposed to represent, um, the good guys, right. You know, Mick, Mick uh, Jagger is probably not a good father. <laughs> right. <laughs> don't radiate that. Um, but it's, I don't think it's completely absent from the pop star. Image. No, I mean, I do remember like John Lennon when, um, Double Fantasy came out, he talked about that a lot. That That's was right. a big That's theme, but right. it's just, um, I think that's more because he chose to talk that's about right. it, you know, that's whereas, you know, I find that the critics were focusing on that with her and oh. not that she was didn't want to talk about it. And obviously it was very important to her. I just sort of, there's just that part of me as a woman who bristled at that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know. I think you're right. And I remember my mom talking about, I mean, one of the ways that uh, Carol King, she sort of made feminism palatable by showing that by revealing either maybe not by her intention that the publicity machine did this that it wasn't a threat to motherhood whereas there were some forms of feminism that were quite critical of conventional ideas about motherhood um and i've I've been talking to my mom about that about the debates in the women's movement at the time um about you know essentialist ideas that women you know should naturally be mothers or whatever so it's definitely true that Whereas she was obviously a devoted mother, that was also used ideologically to frame her as unthreatening, right? She right. was right. She was a good singer and whatever, but she wasn't gonna, you know, kick you in the balls or you know, she wasn't gonna. Yeah. She wasn't. But she wasn't anti-man and she wasn't anti-family. Right. Uh, and I think that made her less scary. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, there's always like a fine line for a group that's trying to gain some semblance of equality that. They need to be careful about, you know, threatening those in power. So exactly. it's, it's like baby steps, you know. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm curious if she's ever made any kind of public statement about uh, having written that song, He Hit Me But It Felt Like a Kiss, which is, you know, she's sort of this, you know, feminist icon and that's such an anti-feminist song. And and I, I actually really like the song, except for the sentiment. I mean, it's a great pop song, right? But it's a horrible feminist sentiment. Has she ever made any public statement about Not that, that I know of. The one that she did um, make a statement of, of course, is... Um, not I will follow wherever uh, the the second song on the uh, the second side that became the right um, that uh, uh, on that TV show Gilmore uh, Girls yeah did, yeah she did change the words to that song uh, to sort of reframe it as a mother daughter song although it doesn't make any sense really quite that way um, but I haven't heard any um, regrets about the um, you know about that uh, that other um, hit from back there and then. You know, um, uh, probably I would guess those words were actually written by Jerry Goffin. Yeah, I'm sure they were. Who yeah. was actually not a big feminist. <laughs> or, <I> mean, <laughs> a lot of a lot of those songs are relatively conventional in their in their. Yeah, yeah. The story I've heard about that song, and I love that song. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just love that whole record. You know, the you know, I think by the Crystals originally. Yeah, but. Um, is that Carol King, Carol and Jerry's babysitter, I think is little Eve, little, yeah, little Eve. Eve. Yeah. And, and the story I've heard is that, you know, she showed up to work for them and she had like a black eye or something. And, and, they, and Carol or, and Jerry said, well, what, what's, what happened to you? And said, well, my boyfriend hit me. And I think she sort of said that, well, he only did it because he loves me, you know? Right. Like, right. And I think that, that stuck in, you know, that became the song. I think that that actually sounds right. I, I And I, I must have read that somewhere. But it is true that um, what Goffin's talent was seen as being able to write from the point of view of a woman, uh, including, mm -hmm. you know, masochistic, vulnerable, you know, I mean, including, you know, less, right, things clearly politically retrograde, problematic now. But certainly that sounds plausible <laughs> as something uh, that would have been said. And, of course, Goffin was you know, not terribly good to King during those, during those years. Oh. Um, but, but that, that actually makes sense. And indeed the, the, the original, the, the hits that she wrote with Goffin, mm -hmm. it was really Goffin, you know, he wrote the lyrics and he took, he projected himself into sort of conventional, um, you know, what, what then were sort of conventional female uh, positions and, and attitudes. And that probably would be the way that she, would have made an excuse for that song, right? I mean, the the tapest the song on tapestry she was more sheepish about because it came out in '71, uh, when you know I guess they felt they should have been, you know, a bit more enlightened. When I first heard that song, it was so shocking. Um, you know, I, I think I first heard it probably um, in the night in the early 1980s because I don't think it was a huge hit that song. I think it was this, you know, no. it was a single, but this. But this the uh, the way it's told, and the way it's presented. Uh, for me at the time, you know, in the nineteen eighties, it struck me as like almost like a character, a portrait of a character. You know, like sort of a uh, not a fictional character, but definitely, I never felt it was a Jerry Goffin statement or a Carol King statement of this is bad or this is good. It's like just telling the story. Yeah, and I think that's the way. Uh, I think that's true for for that song, and to a certain degree, is true for professional songwriting as such, right? Actually, yeah. uh, Robbie Robertson has a 
fascinating quote about writing for the band that he said that he felt like he was actually like a, a playwriter who was writing for three great characters he had, right, in these different yeah. books. Um, and of course, this is all Robert Hunter writing for uh, Jerry Garcia, right? Those aren't, you know, he's not Stagali, <laughs> right? right? He's Right. I mean, these are uh, there's a whole, I think, um, type of songwriting that is about creating characters and uh, and voices. Yeah, Pete Townsend may be that way as well when he writes for The Who, you know, Roger Daltrey, who sings all yes. the songs. Yes, exactly. And so mm -hmm. um, I, I would buy into that. I think that's right. Although it is certainly complicated from because with the singer songwriter sound, there's a tendency to associate the voice and the speaker with the singer. Right. So you feel yes. like. These are about Carol King, right? These are right. about Annie Mitchell, and so then it the the, the political valence is different, right? Because if she's singing about uh, someone, you know, being hit or struck or following, I mean, and you know, just following someone or falling in love in that way. Um, I, another thing that Carol King, I think, was able to do, and this is sort of the, one of the main theses of my book, is combine strength and vulnerability in a way mm. which is enormously appealing and not threatening, right? So she yeah. was independent. I mean, she wrote the song, she sung, uh, she, no, one, no one mentioned her husbands or boyfriends usually. Um, but at the same time, a lot of her songs are about vulnerability, independence and need um, mm -hmm. and uh, um, you know, that kind of strain of things. Um, and I think that was appealing to both women and, and men, that, that combination. When I first saw that this book was written by a man, I was a little bit surprised. Um, I, yes. And, um, you know, and I think you did a great job. I really loved the book, but I, I was curious if you had any sort of concerns or, you know, hesitations in about approaching such a feminist, uh, iconic album, writing actually, about it as a man. Actually, I did. And in fact, I was surprised that it was accepted initially. So, <laughs> I mean, um, I, and again, like I said, I never would have said, oh, I'm the person to write this. That was, uh, mm -hmm. um. Uh, rather, what happened is I had this this anecdote. Uh, you know, the the book opens with an anecdote that I had used many times, um, and so and I had had and I remember and I I'd had responses, um, and frequently women would say I you know that I that's my favorite album. I remember I know that whole album by heart, and they would and my sense was that like people wanted me to write it or that you know what I mean that I had mm -hmm. a I had an angle that would be good for it. Yeah. Um, and I also, I, you know, the, you know, I dedicate this book to my mother and there was also that I actually, I wanted to write something that was dedicated, not just to my mother, but to my mother's generation. Um, yeah. I thought that I was lucky to have been raised by women who went through that experience. And, mm -hmm. um, so it was also a, um, a kind of labor of, of dedication. And I felt like that would hopefully allay some people's doubts about, you know, whether I had the credentials to do it or whether I was appropriate to do it or, or um, whatever. But the deep impulse behind it um, was to leave a kind of testimony uh, to the, um, the women of that generation that um, not only transformed their own lives, but uh, made the world different for their children, right? Made it that we would be raised differently. Mm -hmm. um, so many of the 33 and a thirds are written by academics. You're an academic, correct? You're I am. Professor. Yeah. What is it? What's the appeal? I mean, I assume it has something to do with it. it's a little bit more fun than your typical <laughs> academic writing. But it's much more fun to write about music because you can write yeah. more about feelings. Um, but I will say this: there's a deeper development here that's going on that has to do, and I, I, I'm going to say this neutrally, not not that it's good or bad, 
Um, but as the uh, magazine industry and the criticism industry basically tanks, you know, because of the, the decline mm -hmm. of print journalism, uh, a lot of music journalism is migrating into the academy. Um, mm -hmm. And at the same time, what's happening is you're having people who grew up uh, with rock music so that they can talk about it in more, um, uh, you know, they're making it into now an academic industry, whereas it used to be more of a, um, uh, a sort of mainstream journalistic industry. So I think part of what's happening, and this is happening, I think, with journalism at large. I mean, we have a, a large creative nonfiction program here in Iowa. And a lot of folks who used to be full-time journalists mm. are now relocating into the academy because you just cannot survive. Uh, mm. You can't survive as a, as a music critic anymore, um, mm. you know, unless you're one of the super elite or unless you have some sort of, you know, side business. So um, part of what's happening is the academy is becoming a kind of a uh, safe space, so to speak, mm. um, I think, for, uh, for music criticism. But also what's happening is finally we are acknowledging, in fact, that uh, these, these, this, this genre or this uh, uh, expressive form uh, is as legitimate an area of academic endeavor as mm. literature and poetry. I mean, you know, Bob Dylan sort of proved that a long time ago, um, but now he's sort of carried the entire industry with him. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and you get academic books about Aretha Franklin or about country music or um, you know, about all, all of these uh, um, formations. Yeah, I would say at least half of our guests are academics. <laughs> How do you feel about Bob Dylan winning, winning the uh, Nobel Prize for Literature? Oh, I'm fine with it. I mean, I, uh, I have, like, like many uh, people of my age and sensibility, I am, I, I, try to, I try to temper my obsession with Bob Dylan. When I went into it, I started writing about the liner notes. I was fascinated with uh -huh. Bob Dylan's liner notes. And I, I told a friend of mine that I was afraid I would get, you know, sucked in too deep. And instead of thinking that was funny, he looked at me very seriously and said, yeah, yeah, that's a danger. You should be careful. <laughs> you know, because it, it's, it's this kind of, it's like Faulkner or Joyce or something, you know, you can get sucked into it too deep and then you, and then you uh -huh. can't get out. Um, but I certainly think he deserved it. I mean, I think he's a major literary cultural figure of the later 20th century. Um, and uh, I was happy to see him get that, get that prize. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting how like music criticism in general. I think the importance of music criticism for pop music, uh, rock music, I guess started in the, in the mid '60s, probably like '67, '68. Yep. And then you know, Rolling Stone, I think, advanced it for a while, and then Crawl Daddy magazine. You know, it's, it's an interesting culture in itself. Music. Criticism. Oh, it's a fascinating culture, and it uh, again, it started out as you know underground newspaper. Mm -hmm. right? It started out as the underground press, and then. Rolling Stone, some people to some people's regret and to some people's celebration, you know, made it mainstream and and uh, and made it big money. Uh, one of the things that you'll find if you look deeply into the history is how many of those people were English majors, uh -huh. <laughs> mm -hmm. were, were making songs, treating them as literature. And Bob yeah. Dylan, of course, gave them license to do that. Uh, and that's kind of how, you know, professional pop music criticism started. And there's so many Bob Dylan books out there. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> and, you, and there's only one full Carol King book, and that's your book. I know. Is that true? There aren't any other Carol King books? There's Girls Like Us, which is about Carol King, mm -hmm. Joni Mitchell, and um, Carly Simon. Um, huh. But it's true that I think that's the only full length book, is her autobiography. And then, and then my little tome. Yes. 
Wow. Okay. Well, thank you, Lauren, for adding to the feminist uh, library. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, you know, I, I, I'm proud of it. I, you know, I, as you should be. Yeah. I think it's a, I think it's a really great book. I'm really enjoyed reading it. And I learned a lot of, you know, I'm not a huge fan of tapestry, to be honest. Uh, I don't dislike it. I think because it's such a huge iconic presence in my life. It's something that I just did not jump on. But sure. reading the book, I realized, I mean, I knew it was an important record. But I realized reading your book, just how important it is and how interesting it is. I mean, it's really, a, she's a fascinating person, fascinating history and a fascinating time. And your book really conveys all of that, plus your love for the book, but also your culture, you know, thrown into the mix as well. It's a wonderful book. Well, I couldn't ask for more. Thank you so much. That's just the best <laughs> phrase I could possibly expect to get. Um, so thank you so much. And it's so great talking to you guys. I, I It's a fun book to talk about, too, I have to say. Yes, yes right. it is. Yes. Oh, we're glad. Well, congratulations. <laughs> thank you so much. So, Kinley, what's what's happening next week? All right. Oh, next, well, next, next our next episode, this one's a little bit up in the air, but we're hoping to get a copy of this book soon. It's called A Band with Built-In Hate. The Who from Pop Art to Punk by Peter Stanfield. Carol Keen to The Who. Yes. And back. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so everybody, you can uh, follow us on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter for all the latest news. And we've got playlists to, comp- to accompany all of our episodes on Spotify and Apple Music. And you can find links to everything on our website at bookmusic.com, B-O-O-K-M-U-S-I-K.com. So thank you, everyone, and thank you, Lauren. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye.